it's always weird when it's my voice that is the first voice that you hear. It doesn't happen very often. It's usually Garrett asking me some thought-provoking question that kicks off our episode, our weekly episode of Give Him Hell, Brigham. But today, it's me. It's my voice that you hear first, and it's my voice that you're going to hear throughout the duration of this episode. Once again, we do this annually, it seems like, but once again, I am unleashed, I am unsupervised, I am unhinged, and I am by myself. My partner, Garrett McClintock, the great Garrett McClintock, somebody who I trust, uh, who keeps me on the straight and narrow path, who keeps this show transitioning from topic to topic to topic. He's gone. It's just me. And I've got some weird things to talk about today. That's what you get. And I don't know how to do this. In my head, I think of the great individual radio guys, uh, you know, the Colin Cowherds, you know, the, the, like the Jim Romes, the, the truly iconic sports radio hosts. And they have a lot of pauses. And I thought that that was for like dramatic flair for a long time, that they're pausing uh, for emphasis. They're pausing because they felt like they just made a point that they really want to sink in. That's not why they're pausing, folks. I figured it out. They're pausing for the same reason that I'm going to have to pause as we go throughout this episode, because it's really hard to keep a train of thought going consistently from the start to the end of an episode. Those little subtle pauses, uh, that, that's where I'm gathering myself. I mean, I don't know, maybe the professionals, maybe, maybe they're really doing it and, and they're really making an emphasis. But for me, it is all about gathering my thoughts. Um, there was a story that came out today. And I wish that Garrett was here. This is the kind of story that Garrett would love. It was on KSL. It ended up making national news on like all of the 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 off topic blogs that are out there. It went it made the rounds on Reddit. Uh, a Utah company by the name of uh, a Utah gun company. Let's see, what was it called? Uh, a Utah gun company by the name of Culper Precision made news today when a Lego, yes, Lego little blocks that your little kids play with Legos when Lego sent them a cease and desist of some sort. I don't think it got to an official lawsuit, but some sort of a cease and desist that this Utah gun company needed to stop producing the block 19. Yeah. The block 19, not the Glock, the block. It was a gun. And I'm assuming this is like a casing of a gun, like clearly they didn't make a functional gun out of Legos, but the casing of this gun, it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And it makes me want to boycott Legos because they are not allowing Culper Precision to continue to produce this. It is a gun that is entirely made out of Legos. The sight on the gun is like the little lightsaber piece on your Luke, on your, uh, Luke Skywalker little Lego guy. That's the sight on the top of your handgun. It's a functional handgun. The, the, the handle is blue. The top, the stock of the gun is red. It's a green little Lego trigger. It is incredible. Now, it, it makes sense why Lego would not want to be involved with this. In today's climate, a big, massive company 
like Lego, clearly they're going to want to take a cautious route. That's what they do. And they're from Denmark. They're still located and headquartered in Denmark. And I don't know what Denmark's gun rights or gun laws or gun thoughts and feelings are, but it makes sense to me why Lego would want to distance themselves a little bit from this, uh, this actual gun. But this is one of the coolest things that I've ever seen. I don't care if you're a gun guy. I don't care if you're not a gun guy. The Block 19 is awesome, and it is a damn shame that it is no longer on the market. It was one of the coolest things. And this is something that, that Garrett, I know you're going to listen to this episode, and you're going to wish that you were here to talk about the Block 19 with me. Uh, go look it up. It's on KSL. It was published just today. It, it's all over Reddit. The Block 19. There's another story that made it all over Reddit today. Uh, goldfish. I've got some funny stories to talk about. Well, it's kind of sad. And if if any of you guys are on, uh, you know, like a PETA advisory board or anything like that, you're not going to like this story. Uh, there's a lake in Minnesota where, for whatever reason, people, they would, you know, have pet goldfish or whatever. And they would dump those goldfish into this lake. This is sort of in the same vein as a cocaine hippo, that people would dump their pets into this lake. Now, goldfish are resilient, and goldfish will get huge. I don't know if you've ever kept a goldfish alive for long enough to let it really grow, but they get big. Well, these goldfish in this lake are taking over. Enough goldfish have been dumped into this lake that they are taking over the lake. And here's why these goldfish, people that are going fishing in this lake and pulling out goldfish are like bigger than footballs. There's a picture. We'll put it in the show notes. I don't know if we will or not. We will if Garrett knows how to do it because I don't. Garrett does, but Garrett's gone. So hopefully Garrett puts these in the show notes. Otherwise, we'll tweet it out. These goldfish, like people are holding this goldfish up with two hands in this picture. It is enormous, and apparently goldfish like this are taking over the lake, all from people who have dumped their former pets. They're not their current pets. They're getting rid of them. People have dumped their former pets into this lake, and now these goldfish are enormous and taking over, which is why everybody should handle their goldfish the same way that I handled my goldfish. Uh, it, was, it was really a goldfish at my grandpa's house. My grandpa, he, he lived on a, or he, he owned a dairy farm in uh, Lewiston, Utah, up north of, of Logan, Aggie country. He, he owned a dairy farm and he had a dairy farm-esque house. It was old. It wasn't very big. They had a hundred kids uh, and, and only a couple of bedrooms. I mean, that's just kind of the, the nature of a dairy farm. So my grandpa well, my grandpa, he, he had, you know, eight kids. I think they had eight kids. My dad was the oldest. My uncle is the youngest of these eight kids. And so he was the last person to move out of the house, my uncle. And he had a fish tank in the basement of my grandparents' house. And there were just a couple of goldfish, three or four goldfish. And I think he went on his mission or he got married or something. But when he left, he left the goldfish in the basement. And these goldfish, I don't know who was feeding them. I don't know if they were just eating moss and algae, but this tank kind of cleaned itself enough that these fish could survive. And somehow they were eating and they were growing and they kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I had a cousin uh, 
he and I were like, I don't know, like eight, nine years old. We weren't very old. And uh, it started out as a dare of, I dare you to, you know, touch one of these big giant goldfish. Like they weren't football sized goldfish, but I remember it being pretty big. Uh, like they were the size of like my eight, nine year old fist. I mean, they were pretty good sized goldfish. And uh, it started out as a dare, you know, I dare you to touch it. I'll touch it. You know, they touched the goldfish that was picking up. And then I don't know what we were thinking. We were nine, but we thought, I wonder if these goldfish can survive being dropped because they were huge. So we took a goldfish and my grandparents had a laundry chute and we went upstairs. We took the hampers and all the clothes and whatever out of the bottom. And we just dropped this goldfish from the, the, the top floor and it went down the laundry chute and landed on the floor. Now, we thought for sure this fish was dead, but this is how resilient these things are. This fish was alive. It fell down a laundry chute onto a concrete floor and somehow survived. We threw it back in the tank after it hit the ground and it just kept going. It was amazing. Well, then at that point, obviously, you're nine, eight, nine years old. It was, well, shoot, well, what else can we do to this goldfish? So then we, well, okay, can we drop it from the outside porch? And these goldfish just kept surviving. I don't know how. Still to this day, I have no idea how the goldfish survived the first two or three rounds of us figuring out what can a goldfish survive. It still makes no sense to me. Well, then finally, when we found the limit, it was, can I take a goldfish and throw it as hard as I can at the wall? Long story short, they can't survive that. So goldfish could survive in a lake in Minnesota. They could survive in an unattended fish tank. They could survive a fall down a laundry chute down one story. But the line for these goldfish is uh, being thrown at a wall uh, at however many miles per hour an eight or a nine-year-old boy could throw. And we weren't very far away from the wall. And I remember watching this fish and you could see the life just kind of leave it. It was sad. We felt bad. Uh, I didn't think we would feel bad, but we felt bad and I still feel bad. It's been 20 something years and I still feel bad for that goldfish, what we put it through. And I was reminded of that when I saw these football sized goldfish. Uh, but moral of the story is take care of your goldfish because if you just dump them in a lake, they'll take over. And yet somehow the block 19 and these football sized goldfish were not the craziest story in the news this week. No, 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 my friends. The craziest story in the news this week in, involves a uh, former BYU football quarterback. One Jake Heaps, friend of the show. We hope to bring him on of the show here in the future. He, he uh, is a radio host in Seattle on, on ESPN 710. Obviously transferred to Kansas, played at Miami, played in the NFL for a minute. Now he's a coach at the Russell Wilson Academy. Jake Heaps, great man, great story in BYU football's legacy and the history of BYU football, really good guy. He was on American Ninja Warrior this week. Yes, American Ninja Warrior. There were 42 people who participated in the qualifiers during this episode of American Ninja Warrior. 
and uh, only 18 people completed all of the obstacles. The other 24 were eliminated. Unfortunately, Jay Keeps was one of those 24 who was eliminated, so his American Ninja Warrior career is over. But one Jay Keeps was on American Ninja Warrior, and that is, I think, the weirdest story. Maybe not weird, like how strange. You know, people go on American Ninja Warrior and Jake Heaps was an elite athlete. Why wouldn't he go on American Ninja Warrior? That makes sense. But maybe random is the right word. You know, it's a shame that he's not on the show still, but it's not as it's not quite at the same level of shame. As it is that Brett Engelman did not get to have his moment on The Bachelorette. COVID-19 screwed up a lot of things. There were a lot of people there, obviously. The, the, the people who were really affected, who, who were sick, who lost loved ones, like that's, that's the real obvious, obviously the real tragedy of COVID-19. And no way are we downplaying that here. But outside of the real tragedies, I think the fact that Engelman was robbed of his chance to go on a journey to find love on The Bachelorette, and we were robbed of the opportunity to see Brett Engelman on that journey I think that that is the most unfortunate thing about COVID-19. That's the thing that COVID stripped from us that maybe I missed the most. We missed a lot of baseball games. We missed some football games. Obviously, had the schedule. BYU's schedule was torn apart. Some teams only played a few games. Basketball played in a bubble. The NBA was in a bubble. We missed a lot of things. We couldn't go to movies for like a year and a half. But the fact that Brett Eggman's journey for love was cut short is a tragedy. And that's our transition. You guys know this. This is going to be a quick show because I don't have Garrett here to egg me on. And he does. Garrett eggs me on, like we all know. Uh, but we're going to transition. And you guys know this. When I'm on my own, our transitions are a little bit rocky. It's not easy to transition from subject to subject and make it seamless when you don't have anybody to bounce ideas off of. There's no sounding board. There's nothing. It's a little bit tough, but we are going to transition. We've got, there, there's been a lot of BYU football news. Now, typically mid July like this is kind of a, it's kind of a quiet time in terms of news. This is the last couple of weeks of the off season. This is the last couple of weeks that coaches get to see their families until January. This is the last couple of weeks that players get to go home. They get to see their families, hang out with their girlfriends and, and do stuff until January. Like, obviously, they'll see family. They get to go home, but it's different. During the season, their lives are different. I've known players who, during the season, they're so beat up after practice, so tired after, uh, you know, after fall camp, training camp, they get tired. And so they, by the time they get home, they're just worn out. They're beat. They invest a ton of money into watching, or a ton of money, a ton of time into watching film, into preparing that after they go through the physical challenge of, of being at practice all day long or being in the weight room, then they go home and they exert a whole bunch of mental energy into watching film and getting ready for the season. It's, it's a grind. It's tough. And we're, we're in the last couple of weeks before these players and these coaches really get into the grind. So typically, these last couple of weeks of the, of the offseason, 
Now I say the off season, obviously BYU doesn't kick off until September, but it is the end of the off season, meaning that that fall camp starts in just a couple of weeks, like two and a half weeks, folks. And after fall camp starts, it's the season. There's not games, but it's the season for these players and these coaches. So we're the last couple of weeks. It's usually a quiet news time. There's usually not a lot going on because there's not a lot happening in the program. People, players are conditioning. Coaches are on vacation. Coaches are spending time with their families before the grind. But there is some news this week. It's mostly uh, projections. It's mostly looking at how things have shaken out, some recruiting news, things like that. There hasn't been a lot of tangible news of, player X has done X, Y, and Z, or player Y is looking really, really good in practice. There's not a ton of that buzz right now because it's a quiet news time, but there is still a ton of things to talk about as it relates to BYU football this week. Maybe the most important of those topics is Cody Hagan, corner Canyon wide receiver, one of the best wide receivers in the country. Cody Hagan is absolutely legit. Now he doesn't look legit right he's a he kind of looks like Dax Milne that he's a six foot one white wide receiver out of Utah like for better for worse fair unfair that kind of player is never going to be looked at in the same vein as somebody like Julio Jones was Calvin Ridley was you know even even lesser receivers uh like like Solomon Ennis at Utah like they're they're not going to be viewed the same. There's just that's what our, our unconscious bias is going to do. But make no mistake about it, Cody Hagan is legit. One of the best receivers in the country. Released his top four today BYU, no surprises. BYU, Stanford, USC, and Utah. Those are Cody's top four schools. He's got a number of other offers, but those are the schools that he's going to focus on. And those are the schools that he's been focused on for a little while. BYU was one of the first schools on Cody, and they've maintained a strong relationship. Fessy Satake has, has run that uh, run point on that recruitment. He's done a good job. BYU is right where you would hope BYU would be. You can't be number one in the end if you don't make the top four. So BYU makes the top four. That's the first checkpoint. There's a lot of buzz, a lot of momentum for a program like Stanford right now. The Hagen family, they are incredibly, incredibly intelligent. Cody's older brother, Cole Hagan, is serving a mission right now, uh, but he committed to go to Yale to play football as a quarterback. Yale. Yeah, he's smart to go to Yale. Education's really important. Stanford has that education. Now, we've talked about this on the show over the last few weeks, that uh, the undergraduate degree at Stanford, I, I, I think, is overvalued. It's obviously important. You know, if you have the opportunity to go to Stanford as a standard regular student, it's a little bit of a different track. But as a football player, it would be really interesting. And I wish I wish that I had I wish that somebody we knew had the resources and the data available to them to do an analysis that really went to show how valuable is a football player's degree from Stanford relative to a football player's degree from BYU, from Utah, from USC, from the other schools that Cody Hagan is considering. My gut tells me that the average salary or the average 
uh, I don't know, like job title. My gut tells me that for football players, it's pretty consistent regardless of which school they go to. Now, obviously, you know, if you're going to Weber State as a football player, it's a little bit different. Like Stanford is clearly on another level. But when it comes to these big time college football schools playing FBS college football, that also have a strong reputation and really pick one, right? I mean, most of the top half of the NCAA of the FBS has a strong reputation. My hypothesis is that the, the salary difference between a Stanford, a former Stanford football player who gets his Stanford degree compared to a former BYU football player who gets his BYU degree is not that big of a difference. I just don't think it is. I can make the same argument for USC, for Utah, for UCLA, even for the University of Colorado, right? I, I just don't think that a, a football player at Stanford is the same as a, a student at Stanford. There's different motivations. It's a different network that you get, that you get to break into. It's different. And it's also different for a BYU student, right? I mean, sure, for, for, for every Ryan Smith out there that, that makes it huge, there's how many thousand regular BYU graduates that end up hosting podcasts, right? I mean, that, that, there's a lot of that. So I think if you're a regular student, yeah, the connections that come with your Stanford programs, your Stanford degrees are huge. But as a football player, you're not as inundated in that, in that part of, of life as other students are. You're just not. You don't have the time. You don't have the capacity to be that inundated. So your network, obviously there's players, or there's people in that network who aren't football players, but your network is largely contrived of football players. I don't know. I, I, to me, I think it's overstated that if, oh, if my kid got an offer to play football at Stanford, I couldn't turn it down. I think that's bunk. We've talked about it a bunch. But a lot of buzz for Cody Hagan to go to Stanford. Um, obviously, there's the connection with Jackson Dart at USC. Uh, they played at Corner Canny together last year. Makes makes a lot of sense. They still are, have, a, have a close friendship. Utah, the Hagans grew up cheering for Utah. They're the hometown school just down the road. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, but BYU's firmly in the mix here. If they weren't, they wouldn't be in the top four. I mean, there's, there's, I've gotten to know Cody Hagan a little bit and his family a little bit. And, and one thing I know is they're not going to waste time. They're not going to waste time. If they weren't considering BYU as much as they are considering Stanford, USC, and Utah, BYU would not be in the top four. There might be a favorite. If he had to sign tomorrow, there might be one that he signs with tomorrow. But as things stand right now, BYU is right where you would hope they would be. 24-7 Sports released their uh, transfer, their final transfer rankings, and really their final top 150 for transfers ahead of the 2021 football season. And they released their all-transfer team for the 2021 cycle. And Puka Nakua checked in as the number 17 transfer overall and the number three wide receiver thus making 24-7 sports 
all-transfer team. Here's what they said about Nakua uh, in the article. This was written by Chris Hummer. Injuries and COVID-19 have severely limited Nakua's runway so far in his career. But there have been flashes in the 11 games he's played. Nakua has averaged 19.9 yards per catch, and the Huskies coaching staff really did not want to lose him to the transfer portal. Nakua joins a pass-happy Cougars offense and should help fill the void left by 2021 NFL draft pick Dax Mill. Uh, High-level, surface level, I mean, nothing that you're really learning from that paragraph there, but it's true. Washington did not want to let Puka go. When buzz, if you guys remember, there was buzz that happened about Puka coming to BYU. There was buzz probably three months before it happened. Uh, When that buzz first originated, it was prior to COVID-19, prior to all the shutdowns and all that stuff. Uh, There was buzz, not prior to COVID-19. That was a lie. But it was done at a time that, that Washington's coaches were able to come to Utah. Puka was at home. Washington coaches, coaches came to Utah to talk to Puka to try to convince him not to transfer. Washington didn't want to lose him. There are some transfers, right? There are some transfers at every school, BYU included. Recently at BYU, Saleti Fibaliaki fits this mold. But there are some transfers that uh, when they hit the portal, sometimes you push them to the portal, but other times you, they hit the portal and you're not upset. They're a player that, yeah, sure, you maybe wanted them to stick around. Maybe you could have developed them. It's not ideal to lose them. You certainly didn't want them to leave your program. But if they do, you're not having any heartburn about the long-term future of your program. That's a lot of transfers, most transfers, I would say. But there are some transfers that when they hit the portal or when buzz starts to happen that they're thinking about going to the portal, it's a, it's a shot. It's a, it hurts. There's pain involved. And that's what Puka Nakua was. Washington did not want to lose this guy, especially after, on the heels of all the turmoil and turnover that Washington had. But even without that, Puka was a guy who was primed to be a fixture in the Washington offense this year, not just in the future, but this year, Puka would have played a bigger role. 19.9 yards per catch is not nothing. That's that's a really solid number, especially for a guy so young in his career. And Hummer is right. He is joining a very pass-friendly offense, a very quarterback-friendly offense, a very wide receiver-friendly offense. Puka has all the talent. He's going to have the opportunity and the scheme to be very, very good and be dynamic in this offense. He could put up some major numbers this year. Now, I got a little bit of a hot take. I still think wide receiver one going into the year, definitely. But even coming out of the year, it's going to be Gunnar Romney. He's got familiarity. With, I mean, he's played with Jaron Hall for the last few years. If Baylor Romney wins the job, it's his brother. And if Jacob Conover wins the job, it was his high school quarterback. Gunnar Romney's got some built-in chemistry with all three of these quarterbacks. So regardless of who wins the job, who's playing quarterback come Arizona week, Gunnar Romney, I think, is going to have the chemistry, and he's going to be the apple of the quarterback's eye. And he's talented. He's very, very talented. People forget he was definitely, not no debate, definitely wide receiver one 
before he got hurt against, I want to say, Louisiana Tech last year. Dax Milne was wide receiver two. Then after Gunner went down, maybe it was the Houston game that he went down, but after Gunner went down, Dax stepped up, played great. Now he's playing for the Washington football team. He was great. And Gunner was never able to shake that hamstring injury. It kind of lingered throughout the year. But if he's healthy, and he is, I think Gunner, Gunner Romney is wide receiver one throughout the year. Puka could slide in at wide receiver two. I think Neil Pau is going to start the year as wide receiver two. And what will be interesting to see is how much of a cushion, statistically, Pau creates before Puka Nakua figures it out, gets comfortable, and starts to take off. On a depth chart, in terms of targets at the end of the year, when BYU is playing, assuming health, when BYU is playing USC, I firmly believe Puka Nakua will have more targets in that game than Neil Powell. But Neil Powell is going to be wide receiver too against Arizona, probably against Utah, probably against Arizona State. So how quickly Puka Nakua assimilates into the offense is what will determine who finishes the year as wide receiver too. My gut says that Powell is going to have a six, seven game runway head start before Puka really gets comfortable. So I think statistically, Neil Powell probably finishes behind Gunnar Romney as wide receiver two. But from an impact standpoint, what you're seeing on the field as you're watching the games unfold, at the end of the year, Puka Nakua has absolutely has the talent to be wide receiver two. He's that good. Another big component of uh, stati- the statistic performance of these wide receivers is the quarterback. BYU hasn't named a quarterback, but there's a lot of buzz that it's going to be Jaron Hall. It makes sense. He's a dynamic athlete. He was the backup quarterback before he got hurt. He was listed as the backup quarterback for a large chunk of last year, even though he wasn't dressed, even though he couldn't play, he had a hip injury. I think that this coaching staff knows that Jaron Hall is the guy. But I think that there's a little bit of Kyle Whittingham in in Aaron Roderick and that he is going to use whatever he can to motivate players. That doesn't mean that all of the things he's going to use are going to be the best motivator and going to work, but he's going to try to utilize every tool that's in his toolbox and the depth chart and making it an open competition is one of those tools. If there was a game tomorrow morning, Jaron Hall's your guy. I think Aaron Roderick would know and and not have any hesitation to say that Jaron Hall is the guy. And I think ultimately that's what happens is Jaron Hall wins this job, which begs the question, how good can Jaron Hall be? I have said things recently and, and people have people, BYU fans, Utah fans, everybody. Uh, There's been a lot of people who have disagreed with me, but I've said things like that. I don't think the drop off from Wilson from Zach Wilson last year to BYU's or to Jaron Hall this year is going to be that significant. People hear that and it kind of hits your ears a little bit weird. But when I say it's not going to be that significant, I don't think that scoring points is going to be an issue this year at all. I don't think there's going to be very many games, any games, 
that you look at the quarterback play and say, well, BYU lost because the quarterback play sucked. Is Jaron Hall going to be the next number two draft pick in the draft? No, he's not. He's just not. But is he going to be a problem for BYU? Is there going to be, is there going to be a scenario that we need that a BYU needs a quarterback to make a play and Jaron fails or is incapable. Maybe he'll fail. Maybe he'll try and fail, but that he's incapable of making that play. No, I don't think so. I think he's capable of making all the plays. And I think he's going to make more plays than people realize. He is very, very good. Very, very good. In fact, Pro Football Focus, we got a couple of articles that we're going to highlight here. They, they, they really kind of hit this Pro Football Focus, PFF. They really kind of hit this point home. Uh, in their top breakout candidates at the G5 level, and BYU is grouped into the G5 level, don't complain about it. Look, BYU is not P5. They got to go somewhere. So put them in G5. It doesn't matter. But at the G5 level, Jaron Hall is the top breakout candidate, according to PFF. And what they had to say, Hall is set to receive the impossible task of replacing BYU legend Zach Wilson, uh, who last season earned the highest single season PFF grade ever given to a non-Power 5 quarterback. The last time Hall saw game action was in 2019. He showcased toughness, athleticism, arm strength, and an ability to play on the move all things coaches desire at the quarterback position, ultimately learning, earning a 77.3 PFF grade across 55 dropbacks. Hall is unlikely to replicate the level of production Wilson provided. Still, he certainly has the talent to rank among the nation's top non-Power 5 quarterbacks and hold off the kind of debilitating regression that will threaten this BYU program. The only thing he needs to do is avoid injury and play the season from start to finish, something he has struggled with in the past. PFF agrees with me, folks, that, that Jaron Hall is not going to be a problem. That Jaron Hall is probably going to win this job, and he is not going to be a problem for BYU. BYU will not lose games because of the quarterback. And that is why I feel so comfortable saying that, yeah, the drop-off is not going to be significant. BYU, the quarterback position is not going to be a problem. He may not make all the plays and all the throws or be as flashy as Zach, but he will be as reliable as Zach. And he will put, he will put BYU in a position to win as many games as Zach did. That's how good Jaron Hall can be. A 77.3 PFF grade, that's a very respectable grade. Jaron Hall was a freshman thrown into action as a backup. People forget how good he was. Go back and watch that Utah State film from 2019, Jaron was putting balls on a dime. He had one throw to, I believe it went to uh, Talon Shumway from, from BYU's, I don't know, 5, 10-yard line. And it was a you know, 35, 40-yard ball down the, down the sideline. And it hit, I believe it was Talon Shumway. It might have been Gunnar Romney, but hit his receiver in stride. It was a beautiful throw. He had another throw that almost went for a touchdown. Dax Milne was knocked out at like the two or three yard line, uh, that it was like a 40 yard ball. It was beautiful down the other sideline. He had a couple of throws. I think one, I remember going to uh, Aleva Hifo. I remember one going to Dax Milne uh, where Jaron Hall is, is rolling one way or the other, you know, whether it was a designed rollout or whether it was scrambling and making something happen. 
I could think of two instances where he was rolling one way and he hit his receiver in stride. Those are the kinds of throws that Zach made that made him great. Everybody remembers the big time flashy throws where, where Zach is rolling out and throwing it 65 yards down the or through the air and, and finding Dax Milne for a touchdown. Like those three, those plays were highlights. Those plays were unbelievable. But what made Zach Wilson so great was his ability to hit that 10 yard out route to the far side of the field. Jaron Hall can do that. What made Zach Wilson great was his ability to hit the receiver in stride on a bootleg over the middle and throw a seven yard pass. But because that wide receiver didn't have to slow down at all, it goes for 20. Jaron Hall could do that. He's going to be very, very good this year. And I firmly believe that he is going to be the starting quarterback come Arizona. The line was officially released for that game in Arizona. BYU opened up as an 11 and a half point favorite against the Wildcats. Big line, 11 and a half points. That's a, that's a lot of respect uh, from the odds makers in Las Vegas. We've talked about this. I, I think BYU still covers that. I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're, we're six weeks away from game time, but I think BYU covers that. Arizona's not very good. And I think BYU is better than people realize they are. Everybody looks at returning production. And yeah, when you lose Zach Wilson, when you lose Dax Milne, you're losing a lot of production. But BYU isn't replacing that production with freshmen. They're not replacing that production with scrubs. They're replacing that production with guys who have played before across the board. So they lost last year's production, but they didn't lose all the production. It's, it's a funny way to look at it, I guess. But BYU's got returning production. Because of that, I feel very comfortable saying BYU covers that 11.5-point spread. Also, Arizona sucks. Arizona's bad. If BYU doesn't cover that spread, we got to start having some real conversations about how wrong I was throughout the summer. Arizona's not good. Speaking of Vegas, some more news came out this week. A lot of buzz, nothing official yet, but it sure feels like it is. Notre Dame uh, and BYU will link up in Las Vegas next year. Sometime in the month of October is what the rumors are saying. There's a couple of different weeks that haven't mentioned. Uh, but at any rate, sometime in October, a game in, in Vegas. This has been a, a very touchy subject for BYU fans. Obviously, we know the history. When BYU first went independent, one of the first calls they made was to Notre Dame. Notre Dame did BYU a favor, and they signed a home-home, sorry, an away-away-home agreement with BYU. The Cougars, and they, they signed two of them, really. And I think if I remember right, they were actually two individual contracts. The Cougars were supposed to go to South Bend four times over the course of X number of years. And Notre Dame was supposed to return the favor and come back to Provo twice. Now, Notre Dame hasn't done that. Notre Dame's not going to do that. I don't know why. I mean, they're not afraid. Notre Dame's not afraid to come to BYU. They're just not. It's, uh, I know that we say that makes us feel good as BYU fans to say that Notre Dame is afraid to come to Provo, but they're not. That, that isn't the answer. It isn't, period. Stop saying it. Doesn't matter. 
there's a lot of money involved. There's other games. There's this new ACC scheduling agreement. There, there, there's a lot of factors for Notre Dame. But they're not coming. It isn't because of fear, but they're not coming. And it's time that we, we all know that we can all admit that. So what do you do if you're BYU? Do you allow Notre Dame to buy out of the contract? Well, I guess really there's three options. Do you allow Notre Dame to continue to kick the can down the road? And that's what they have done. Well, we'll try to get back to Provo down the road in the future. Well, they're scheduled out through like 2035. So Notre Dame isn't coming anytime soon. So do you allow them to continue to kick the can down the road and hope that in 2040 they come around and finally come back to Provo? I mean, I guess you could. Seems like a crappy option to me. So realistically, I think there are two options. One, do you demand a buyout? Notre Dame pays you whatever the agreed amount of money was. Writes you a check. You shake hands, and that's the end of it. Or do you try and salvage a game at a neutral site like Las Vegas, a site that isn't going to be a far travel for BYU, a site that BYU is going to be very familiar with. They're playing there this year. That makes sense to me. But that has rubbed certain fans' feathers. They don't want BYU to cave. Why should we be why should we do any favors to them? Well, let me tell you why. I I don't know if people remember what that 2011 BYU football schedule looked like. That 2011 BYU football schedule was terrible. Absolutely terrible. There were three games to start off the season against a dreadful old Miss team, against Texas, and against Utah. Those three games, solid games, very good games. In fact, Texas, great game, the rivalry game, and even though old Miss sucked, a game in SEC country. Great. After that, UCF, before UCF was the UCF of today, Utah State, San Jose State, Oregon State, Idaho State. They did get a late game against TCU. Idaho, New Mexico State, Hawaii. Not a great schedule at all. In 2012, opened the season in Provo against Washington State. And then it was Weber, Utah, at Utah, at Boise, Hawaii, Utah State, Oregon State, at Notre Dame, at Georgia Tech. Idaho, San Jose State, New Mexico State. These schedules sucked. If Notre Dame doesn't do BYU the solid, in 2010, when BYU announces they're going independent, when most of the schedules are filled up, especially during conference seasons, BYU is replacing that Notre Dame game in 2012 with probably a school from the WAC, with probably a school like, uh, you know, somebody akin to San Jose State at the time, Idaho at the time, Hawaii at the time. There's a lot of bad teams that could have filled that void. That's what Notre Dame filled for BYU. That was a favor. 
There's no two ways about it. BYU had zero negotiating power. They had zero leverage. They had zero ability to do anything in 2010 that would help build a strong 2011 and 2012, 2013 football schedule. That's just not the way college football works. So go to 2013. That's when you started to see BYU schedules pick up a little bit. Virginia, Texas, Utah, Middle Tennessee, Utah State, Georgia Tech, Houston, Boise, Wisconsin, Idaho State, Notre Dame, Nevada. Not great, but significantly better than it was in 2011 and 2012. And that's when the favor stopped. That's when BYU stopped going to South Bend. And we saw 2014, 15, 16, the schedule's picked up, and it's now the independent schedule that we're used to. But during those first couple of years, it wasn't that. In 2012, if, if Notre Dame doesn't agree to a, uh, an addition of BYU late in the game, BYU is probably playing a schedule of Washington State, Weber State, Utah, Boise, Hawaii, Utah State, Oregon State, uh, not Notre Dame, let's say Nevada, Georgia Tech, Idaho, San Jose State, New Mexico State. It's a terrible schedule. That Notre Dame game was the premier game. And yes, BYU had to go to Indiana, and then they had to go again the next year. That's, that's, that sucks. And yeah, of course you want Notre Dame to come back to Provo. Of course you want them to honor their side of the agreement. But that doesn't take away that they did us a favor 10 years ago. Okay? The fact that they're not going to honor that agreement doesn't take away that favor from a decade ago. That was still a huge favor for BYU. And any game, Notre Dame is one of the few teams that from a TV standpoint, from a spectator standpoint, from a ticket sales standpoint, and from a potential standpoint, that if you go in and you get a win standpoint, Notre Dame is one of the few teams that you schedule no matter what. No matter what. They're not Alabama, and they're not Clemson. I don't think BYU turns down either of those schools. They don't turn down Ohio State. But those are three teams, right, that, that maybe BYU gets lucky, but you're, you're not going to beat those teams. BYU could play Alabama 100 times. Maybe they win one or two. Maybe. The other 98, 99, it's a blowout. That's just how good Alabama is. Notre Dame isn't quite at that level, but from a prestige and a cachet standpoint and what it does for your program, Notre Dame is bigger than Wisconsin. They're bigger than Nebraska. They're bigger than Texas. They're a big deal. Now think back, think of how much excitement BYU fans felt for beating a crappy Tennessee team. Now, the way they did it certainly plays a role. The way BYU won that game certainly plays a role. But that was a, a big win for the program. Think of USC. It was a true freshman quarterback making his first road start. Keaton Slovis was not Keaton Slovis yet. He was just a guy. But BYU beats USC in overtime. That's a program-defining type of win. That's the kind of win that gives you a platform to grow into some hype to make next year great. 
Notre Dame offers that at a higher level. Notre Dame, that is the kind of win that's bigger than beating USC. It's bigger than beating Tennessee. Think of how great it was when BYU went to Madison, knocked off number six, Wisconsin. Beating Notre Dame in Las Vegas is a bigger deal nationally and over the course of time that beating Wisconsin and Madison was. Now, in a, I guess, in a finite and a short amount of time, yeah, beating Wisconsin in their house is huge. But think of when BYU beat Notre Dame in 2004. It is 2021, and people still talk about that game. There's not very many teams in the country that offer that kind of potential. People will be talking about Max Hall, Dennis Pitta, McKay Jacobson beating Oklahoma for decades. Notre Dame offers that kind of potential for BYU. They're not quite Alabama good that you're just going to sign up for a butt kicking. But they are a nationally respected program that if you win, you hang your hat on that win. I don't care that they're not honoring their side of the contract. It doesn't matter. You do not turn down the opportunity to play Notre Dame. We can puff up our chests. We could wear our BYU colors proud and be as prideful as we want to be. BYU or really anybody else outside of three or four or five maybe programs does not turn down the opportunity to play Notre Dame. There is a reason that whether it be the SEC, the Big 12, the ACC, the Big 10, any of those power five conferences, if Notre Dame called them and said, hey, we want to join your conference, they get a deal done that day. That's the power that Notre Dame football has. They're just that respected doesn't matter if it's in las vegas doesn't matter if it's in provo byu does not turn down notre dame that is not the time there are times to to be prideful there are times to not want to let somebody out there are times to stick to your guns notre dame is not one of those times you take the opportunity to play Notre Dame. And if they're coming and saying, hey, we'll play you in Las Vegas, take it or leave it, you take it. BYU could fill that stadium. Uh, BYU is going to outnumber Arizona fans in September like five to one. Notre Dame, I don't care if they're from Indiana, Notre Dame will outnumber BYU fans even in Las Vegas. As As good as BYU is at traveling and as well represented as BYU is, in Las Vegas every time they play there. Uh, This is Notre Dame. It's a different animal. But it's a neutral site game. There will be a lot of BYU fans at that game. You don't turn down that opportunity because if you win, if you win, the rewards are great. Would you like them to come to Lavelle Edwards Stadium? Of course you would. Of course you would. Do you hope that you can make some demands of it's a BYU home game? We get 
BYU gets more tickets, right? Do you, do you hope that you can get some of those things? Yeah, and you try. But when push comes to shove, you do not turn down the chance to play Notre Dame. If BYU can beat Notre Dame in Las Vegas next year, assuming this all comes to fruition, if BYU beats Notre Dame in Las Vegas, it's the kind of game that you're talking about on the recruiting trip. It's the kind of game that gets talked about on college game day the next week. It gets talked about all the time. And we know that's the case because in 2004, BYU beat a ho-hum Notre Dame team. And here we are 17 years later, and people still remember that game. Last bit of news before we, we say that this is a, we, we put a bow on the show and we just wish that Garrett would come back. Seneca Knight, LSU transfer, San Jose State transfer on the basketball court, set to visit BYU this week. Uh, I like where BYU stands. I don't know that it's a done deal. BYU has to sh- put their best foot forward this week and, and, and show really well, but I like where BYU stands, and, and uh, he would be the perfect addition to this basketball roster. Guy who could create his own, go get a bucket, pairing him up with Barcelo and Tijan, Uh there's a lot to like about what BYU could bring to the table next year. It will be a very different looking team than what BYU had this last year with harms and with Averitt, but it will be a very dynamic team. It will be a lot of fun to watch. Uh, so it could be some big basketball news next week. If Seneca Knight enjoys his visit this weekend to BYU folks, this has been fun. My throat is starting to hurt. I've been talking forever. It's time for me to sign off and until we meet again with Garrett back at our graces, give him hell.